If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Let's get one to you. Once you get those Bibles, open them up, please, to Matthew 21. Clearly, we've been in no hurry to get through the text. because There's so many beautiful and rich things in it. So, Matthew 21, verse 23. Look at it with me, if you would, please. Now, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, well, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, on this beautiful autumn afternoon. You are reminding me, Lord, again, he who is planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of their God. Today, you know exactly how much our spiritual stomachs can handle. You know exactly what you want to accomplish in this time. So, Lord, do a magnificent work, we pray. Let this time be time, Lord, where great things happen where you are honored and exalted. God, that today would be so rich in you, so beautiful in you. So, Lord, we commit this. We pray, Lord, for those who are ill, and we've known of several who are quite unwell right now. Be with them, be healing them, be strengthening them. We pray now, Lord, as well, for Daniel as he's... I'm not too sure when he's speaking... But whether we pray in a weird way, retroactively, we do pray that you would give him the pleasure of sensing your presence as he shares. And here in this room, Lord, you know how to speak to each of us. Every one of us, God, you know what we need to hear today. So, Lord, let us hear, please. Let us understand. Let us get it. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your final say. Well, we're looking at the last week of Jesus. On Sunday, Jesus did his triumphal entry. Remember, he enters in from the Mount of Olives between Bethphage and Bethany on a donkey. And as he does, we read that it was late. He went and he looked around and he went to Bethany and spent the night there. On Monday, he would enter back in and clear the temple. After he clears the temple, he healed the lame and the blind. And many were declaring him, save now, please save now. Hoshana, that's what Hosanna means. That was Monday. Tuesday now, Jesus has, as we've seen the result of the fig tree. When he came to it, it was only leaves and of course it's been cursed. And I think that that was the last state of Adam in the garden was just only leaves. For what it's worth, 
The next time you see figs in Scripture will be when the spies return from the promised land to show you this was the land God had ordained. In Judges 9-11, they're known for their sweetness. In 1 Samuel 15-18, they're used as part of a peace offering to abate the avenger. In 1 Samuel 30, verse 12, brings back strength, brings healing in 2 Samuel 20, verse 7. But in Jeremiah 24, it spoke of people. And a fruitless tree of lifeless religion is cursed. And now we start to see as Jesus enters into the temple with this cursed fig tree behind him, we see the craggy, arthritic branches of this lifeless, godless religion all lurching each in their own branch to try to catch Jesus in the temple. And on this day, everyone's going to get a crack at him. I mean, as far as the, we know the breaks and branches of this, the chief priests will see here first. Those that rule the temple, it's going to be over authority. For the Pharisee legalists, it'll be over keeping the tax laws of Caesar. For the liberal Sadducees, it'll be a story, a conceptual concept to try to refute the true and literal resurrection. For the scribe theologians, theologians it'll be about the greatest command. But here it begins with the chief priests, and it makes sense, because it's their job to keep the order. Now, we don't have anything like that here. In some churches, there are people that are uh, more than just chief deacons. A deacon's just an errand runner. That's all the word means. Diakonos literally means to run an errand. So when a guy says, I'm a deacon, don't mess with me, tell him to go get you something. But there are some places where they have what they call a warden. Which is interesting because at least in America, a warden, you usually only hear that word in a prison. That's the guy that oversees the prison. But in many cases where what a warden generally is, is a person who oversees the comings and goings of the building. They oversee to make sure the heat is on or the electricity is working, that kind of stuff. And the reason I say that is, is maybe in such a case that they have to make sure that they keep order. They're the guy that probably would be responsible if some kind of nutter came in and just started doing something really, really crazy and off color. It would be their responsibility to go and handle them. Now, in the days of Jesus, that's kind of what you're looking at with chief priests. Jesus has stepped in, and I remind you, yesterday, Jesus overturned the temple. I mean, he kicked out the money changers and those who sold doves, and he said, get them out of here. He caused quite a ruckus. And you can imagine that's going to make the warden a little bit nervous and a little concerned. But here what we read it is, as is the chief priests. Now, don't miss this. So forgive me for one second, but let me kind of give you a little bit of history working up to this. This may not be very long. Of course, it's me, so it probably will be. But it's not my intention for it to be. But at least I want us to get some context. That in the temple there's a hierarchy, a pecking order. And since the nation was restored after the destruction of the last temple, the last temple was destroyed in the same place, was destroyed in 586 B.C. by Babylon. Since that day, they've never actually had a king since they've come back and rebuilt the nation. If there was a rock star, an image, a character person, an icon, I would say it would be the high priest, or as the Jewish would call it, the Kohen Gadol. Now, if you understand, the high priest was, of course, the guy that was, you know, it isn't like you'd actually try to volunteer for this, because he only really had one responsibility all year. 
I mean, other than sort of public appearances where it's kind of cool and you get your picture taken with him. Uh, the idea of it, his one day was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the whole year he basically prepared for it. Where on that day he offers a sacrifice for the people. And if it doesn't, if the sacrifice or the sacrificer is not accepted, he's just killed right there in the Holy of Holies. So I don't know which one of you would, vol- would volunteer to be the high priest. But so we have this high priest. And in, in essence, really, if we could be honest, he's a bit a lot like the queen. He's a beautiful figure type. He's a great example in many ways or supposed to be. But he isn't necessarily making all the laws. He's much more of a figurehead. The laws were, in essence, made by a group of 70. And that goes all the way back to the book of Exodus when 70 elders were raised up to help Moses. Those 70, or Sanhedra, is where we get the word Sanhedrin. So, if you will, it's the closest thing you might find to sort of a, uh, you know, kind of like a, well, a place where everyone can kind of vote, but people really don't get a vote in it. It's not as much of a democracy as it would appear, but it were 70 people that represented the entirety of the people. Uh, those 70 people were rulers. They sat at the Sanhedrin, and there was a person that was the president of that Sanhedrin. And they might be much like what we would think of as the prime minister. Now, interesting for what it's worth, from roughly, if we can kind of play it out, from roughly 9 A.D. till 30 A.D. was a guy that we know of as Shammai. Many of you might be familiar with him. He was kind of, a, he was kind of known as a grumpy dude, if you will. He was a guy that was very, very hardcore. He was, he was the one who said that Gentiles were created to fuel hell. That's kind of his mindset. And in 30 A.D. he was replaced then by Gamaliel who, by the way, we know is remarkably tempered. He's the grandson of Hillel, the elder. He's also, by the way, we know, the personal tutor or teacher to Paul that we'll get in the New Testament. More than likely, Jesus' entire trial had to go right across the feet of Paul, too, because he more than likely, well, he had to have been still there working beside him because it was his personal, it was his overseer. Gamaliel will, for what it's worth, be the overseer or the president of the Sanhedrin from 30 to 50 AD. So the entirety of Jesus' ministry, the three and a half year ministry, is going to take place with this guy overseeing the president of the Sanhedrin. Now, for what it's worth, back in First Chronicle 24, back when David was king, that's about 1,000 BC, a millennium BC, during that time, The priests as a whole were broken up into 24 different sections. And they were broken up so that each priestly order then was actually then would have a responsibility to come and serve at the temple for half a month a year. Since there are 12 months in a year, every group would be under an order of some figurehead from their family. And that particular person would say, all right, they'd cast lots at the beginning of the year or whatever and say, all right, now you get the second half of February, if you will. You get the third half of, you know, there's no third half. You you get the first half of March. That's kind of the idea here. We know that one of those groups is a group that's from the order of Abiyah. And we know that because the person who was actually called to go in and burn incense was a guy named Zechariah or Zechariah. John the Baptist's father. We know that from the Gospel of Luke. It was his turn to go and burn incense because he was one of those 24 groups. And he was, and as they drew lot among the group, he was the one that went in to go and light incense to cast it for prayer. So this is what we know. 
that there are 24 different groups, each one serve at half a month. And overseeing each of those groups, then, is a person that would, they would call the chief priest. So you have this group of at least 24 men that oversee their particular group that are, in essence, the ones who make sure that everything runs smoothly in the, in the temple. And that's what we read here as the chief priests. And again, Jesus had made quite a bit of a mess, a bit of a ruckus yesterday. So you can tell they're going to go in and start handling him. What's interesting is because they were the chief priests, they had, of course, they were very much drunk on their own power. Any person that was actually given and granted, like we might say an ordination to a pastor who ordained you. The only people who did that were these chief priests. You couldn't just get it from a Pharisee or someone in the Sanhedrin. You had to get your, your as a teacher, you actually got that backing from one of these chief priests because they assumed if you were going to teach, you were from the tribe of Levi, you were one of the priests. That's going to play into this, of course. They weren't known as scholars, but they were definitely known as the ones in charge, and you didn't mess with them. Now, with that in mind, let me say one more thing, and we'll take us right into our text. This is what we know throughout the, the Gospel of Matthew about the chief priests. They were the ones that Herod went to when he asked, where was the Messiah to be born in Matthew 2.4? And they were the ones who said Bethlehem. It was the chief priests who knew that. Of course, that would ultimately lead to Herod massacring all of the children that were boys under the age of two. It was the chief priests in Matthew 26, 14 that made a deal with Judas. It was the chief priests, by the way, that Judas then, once realizing Jesus had been condemned to death in 27, 3, would throw the money back at their feet and say, I've betrayed innocent blood. And their answer is, so what? That's your problem, not ours. It's the false, I'm sorry, it's the chief priests who actually we read in 2659 will seek false testimony against Jesus and in 27.1 will plot to put Jesus to death. It's the chief priests who in 27.20 actually persuaded the crowd to ask for, Bar, for Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus. It was the chief priests who in 2762 asked for a guard or persuaded Pilate to give them a guard to oversee the tomb. And therefore, it was the chief priest that the guards went to in 2811 after they fainted like a bunch of pansies in front of the angel that rolled away the stone. Now, I don't know if you realize, they actually play a very important role and quite a prominent role in this gospel. The chief priests were the people in charge. And they made sure that things ran smoothly and Jesus was really mucking that up. Now, let me ask you something. If you gave Jesus complete and absolute control in your life, what would he mess up in yours? What would he start just driving out? What would he mess up? What things would he make difficult for you because you've already put things in order and they're not necessarily something that God would approve of, but at least for you it seems to be orderly. What things would Jesus change in your life and how far would you go to keep him from doing that? Where would you go to the point where you're like, Jesus, until this point we're good, but if you mess with this, we're done. You know, I won't say that I'm not a Christian anymore because I don't want to go to hell, but I really am not going to actually pursue you like I really want to. I won't give you the gifts that you've given me and the breath that you've given me somehow to return back to you. We'll understand Jesus now. It's Tuesday. We've seen the fig tree cursed and we've seen it shrivel up and die. And now Jesus is in the temple, and what we read is he's, tempt he's actually teaching before these guys actually approach him. They wait till Jesus gathers a crowd. 
Look at what it says in verse 23. Now, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him. A proserkamai is the word for confront, and it literally means, if you will, they came at him. That's a term that I'm familiar with. You know, you get the idea someone really just kind of came at you. So in this particular situation, notice it says, as Jesus was teaching. So it isn't like they confronted him as he entered into the temple area and they went, hey, excuse me, we've been looking for you. They wait until the guy got his crowd because what they really want to do is they want to shut Jesus down in front of people. If they can slam Jesus, if they can body slam Jesus in front of everyone else, they can look like the heroes. Jesus could look like the loser and everyone will bail on Jesus and they get everything that they're looking for. And by the way, people are still looking to do that to this day. If they could just wait until they can gather the crowd and then body slam Jesus in whatever way they want, surely as a result of that, everyone's going to bail on them. Well, they've gone to the wrong person to do this. So Jesus is teaching and their question is a simple one. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Now, this is a catch-22 in two different ways. I remind you, the first is they were the only ones who granted authority for this kind of thing. And Jesus clearly hadn't gotten authority from any one of these 24 fellows. So obviously at a point like that, they're kind of looking at it going, in the simplest sense, who told you you could do this? Who do you think you are? And this is the most astounding thing when you think about it, because the very person... The very person who gave them breath, who holds their heart beating, that causes their blood to flow, is the same person that they're asking and saying, who do you think you are to do what you do? To think that for a moment we can approach God and say, how dare you start changing things here? How dare you start restructuring and cleaning things up? How dare you do that? Imagine the audacity to approach God in this way. But they're asking nonetheless, because on the first side of it, they think that they're in control. And because they think they're in control, they actually feel like Jesus is out of line because they haven't given him permission. Now, when we sing stuff like, Lord, have all of me, take all of me. Are we not giving him permission to do anything with our all? I mean, are we actually singing that, but really in the simplest sense, saying, Lord, have all of this stuff I really want changed anyways, but you better check with me beforehand as if we're the foreman of the project that God is actually behind. And these people are looking at God in the flesh, standing before them and saying, so which one of us, who actually gave you the power to do such a thing as this? And the word, by the way, exousia is the word here for authority. It is a word, in the simplest sense, it means a privilege granted or delegated. In other words, somebody has to endorse you. Where is your endorsement? Where is your sponsorship? Where is your... That's what we get here. Jesus, who ordained you? What group... And again, they have the monopoly. Is there anything that God is going to do or will do or wants to do in your life that you're still busy fighting him on? In the simplest sense, because if we're going to be honest, we think this is an area we have control over. And we wouldn't want you to muck with that, God, would we? Is that where we're at? But there's another level to this, of course, as well. 
And the other level is the simple fact that they're trying to pull out of Deuteronomy 13. It says this in Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, or someone who gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder does come to pass, of which he spoke to you, but then he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, let us serve them. Well, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you on whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. What God says in the simplest sense is this. If there's God, what God does make clear is that people can do miracles and that doesn't mean that God sent them to do that. So let's say some guy does that. He does something really fantastical and you look and go, wow, that was amazing. Look at that guy go. And you're in awe. You are shocked and amazed. God says, it is not that. That's just to cause you to go, well, then we should just blindly follow him. We find that that'll be the Antichrist. But he says that you should test them at that point to find out who they're pointing you to as a result. And if they point you to anyone but the living God, well, then they're a false prophet. And if they're a false prophet, you have a responsibility to stone them to death. You know, there's a joke we have among some of the pastors that says, why are there so many false prophets in the world today? Because we stop stoning them. Now, that's kind of the simple truth behind it. But consider this. That's where they think they've got Jesus. Because if, they, if Jesus says, this is my own authority, well, then they're clearly he's pointing things to himself and not giving glory to God. And if that were the case, then they could pull a Deuteronomy 13 on him and stone him in front of everyone and make it look like they were the victims. They'd be like, well, we had to do this. We were required by law. He's clearly a false prophet. And because he's a false prophet, we have to kill him. That's what the law tells us we have to do. So they throw this out at Jesus and they think they've got him trapped. And this is going to be the case with just about every one of these groups. They, they, they kind of have this thing in their pocket. This is kind of what they're known for. So because they're known for this, they've had time to really you know, dedicate and discipline themselves to come up with the perfect argument. And this is theirs. There's this, so what authority do you have? To do this. Now, it is a classic thing to, if somebody is questioning your motive, they can answer with a question. It's a volley, if you will. And if they answer, then you are, you're required to give yours, and Jesus uses and exercises that right. He says, So let me ask you a question. You answer it, I'm glad, I'll gladly answer yours. There's, by the way, let me just say this you'll never trap God. There's never going to be a moment where you're going to be able to say, God, look at this evidence or look at this thing or this smart guy said this or I'm quoting somebody that died a long time ago, so I'm sure it must be true or I read it on the Internet, so obviously that must be true or whatever it is. And you think, ah, and somebody comes up to you and hear me on this. It is not your job to defend God, but it is your job to exalt him. And when you're afraid to represent God because you're afraid someone's going to ask you a question you don't know, don't worry. God knows how to answer their questions. And he may give you the answer right then and there, but you'll never know until you're in it. Or he may not. And he'll just speak to him another way. But I do know this. We're not responsible to answer everyone's questions, but we are responsible to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. And they need to know that. So Jesus asks, John's baptism. Well, was that from man or was that from God? I mean, is that, are those are really our two options as far as authority? Did man give 
John that authority or did God give John that authority? Now, this is really important because what we're going to see in this as we kind of bring this around is that John himself, the necessity of John was so much more than just being a front runner. So hear me all the way back 720 years before Jesus ever set foot on the earth as we know him in the flesh here. And Isaiah 40, it tells us that there would be a voice crying in the wilderness telling us that the Lord is coming and we are to make straight then the desert, in the desert, a highway for our God. In other words, make it easy for him to have free entrance into you. When the Lord really wants to reveal himself, he doesn't want to have to fight you for every inch that he gains to get closer to you. Doesn't that sound crazy? God came to be with you and we keep putting things in his way. And he still has to climb over and, and, and surmass these things, these obstacles. And Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 40, he says, look, at, that's not the way it's supposed to be. You should make it simple and easy. There should be nothing you should have to have fight him over because he wants to be with you. Why would you want to fight him over that? Malachi, the last book of the scripture of the Old Testament, tells us that he will actually send a messenger. This is Malachi 3.1 who will prepare the way before me. This is the Lord speaking. The Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messengers of his covenant, of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then he'll develop that even more in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. 4, verses 5 and 6. We knew that there had to be a messenger. We knew what his message was going to be. Make straight away for the Lord. We knew that he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, and we know that he would come to prepare the way so that the Lord would reveal himself. So in Mark 1, verse 4, it tells us that John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching the gospel, or I should say the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. John says he was sent to be the forerunner, and he did that by telling people they needed to repent. The word for repent is a simple word, meta noeho. Meta means amidst or change. The word noeho, noia, like paranoia, means to think. In the simplest sense, I mean, we look at the word and we don't use it. I mean, when was the last time you used the word repent out of a Christian context? Maybe when was the last time you used the word repent at all? But in the simplest sense, what John is telling you is you need to change your mind. That's what he's telling you. You need to change your mind about who you're relying on. You need to change your mind about where you're going. You need to change your mind about what's the most important thing in your life. Because the Lord is coming, and you better really seriously consider that. Here's the good news. If you're willing to change your mind, God is willing to change your heart. But you've got the mind to change. And he gave you a will with that mind. So you have the freedom to make that choice. And then John said, There is one coming after me who was before me. He's older than I am. Which is interesting, because Jesus physically will be born six months after John the Baptist. However... His beginning was everlasting. Jesus never had a beginning. That's why John could say that. He says, I'm not even worthy to go down and untie his shoes. But when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, there's a lot of people who like to mix those two as if John was saying that this is the whole package. You get the Holy Spirit and fire. But I'd like to challenge you, if you're sort of a Greek linguist, you'll discover this, that they're ablative. They're two different options. He's either going to baptize. You're going to be immersed in something. You're either going to be immersed in God's presence or you're going to be immersed in fire. Which of those two would you rather be immersed in? Any of you ever get burned? 
I mean, you ever burn yourself? I mean, not perfectly, not intentionally, but you ever like really get burned? I've been burned with several things in my life, none of which were pleasant. They're a horrible experience, but I can't imagine me being immersed in it. John says he's coming. His winnowing fan is in his hand. And he's going to thresh that wheat and he's going to clear his threshing floor. He's come to clean house for this broken branched, gnarly thing that's called religion right now. And then he's going to come and call his own. And then Jesus is baptized. And it's important to recognize, and again, don't just believe me on any of this, but as Jesus is baptized, John tells, the, John tells Jesus, I should be baptized by you. We're aware of that. We almost assume as if John had this divine information and he looks and he goes, well, here's the Messiah clearly and surely I should be baptized by you. But what's interesting is we do know that there are relatives. The two of them are related to each other, Jesus and John. But then John would say, I didn't even know who it was, except the one who sent me to baptize said this. The one who you see when he's baptized, that the dove lands upon, that's your man. Now, for all the years we spent by the ocean, we never once, I don't recall ever seeing a dove just sitting and landing on your shoulder unless you put bread there. It is a very unique experience. And the reason John says that, it's clear to point out, is that John didn't know Jesus was the Messiah. He just knew that Jesus was more righteous. And that's a beautiful thought. But John's testimony is one in his baptism, is a baptism of repentance. It's not the baptism we do when we go out because, well, that changing of your mind needs to take place to receive Jesus in the first place. The baptism we do is a baptism of Christ, of course, the one we're sent to according to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, for instance. And it is one that testifies of what happened the moment you said yes to Jesus. He buried the old you and raised the new you. And that's exactly what he wants us to be able to see. And to be honest, experiencing it is part of the fun. Because there's a part of you that goes, hey, all parts of this body need to recognize this is what Jesus did to me. He took who I was and he buried that person. He took that the filthy and the shameful and the guilty person. And that person went down. But I didn't just stay down. He rose a whole new me. And the new me is somebody that is under God's governance now. He runs me and he changed me and he, and he revolutionized because that is what God wanted. But it is important to recognize this. That we need both. We need clearly a John the Baptist statement here. And by the way, for what it's worth, this message of repent was Jesus' first message too, for what it's worth. Matthew 4.17 makes clear, after Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he comes back and he begins to teach repent. Change your mind. By chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus said, when they asked him about the people that he's hanging out with, he said, I didn't come to call, you know, the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He says, this is what I've called to do. I've come to call them to change their mind. When Peter begins his ministry at Acts chapter 2, verse 38, his message, they say, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent. In 319, John joins him, their message, repent. When Paul begins his and he speaks about the message he even began with when he recounts his story in Acts 26.20, he says, I started by teaching everyone repent. It is used eight times in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation when the letter is written to the seven churches and he tells them all, repent. But we can't just have repentance. It isn't just about changing your mind. It's to whom are you repenting? And here's where the fundament hits. That there is this cheap gospel out there where it's like you don't have to change your mind about anything. You could just add Jesus to it. And it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. On the other side, we do read this 
In John 1.14, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld the glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It tells us in three verses later that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And here's the issue. Is that we need, if you will, JB and JC if we're really going to have a healthy walk. John the Baptist and our Jesus Christ. See, JB without Jesus Christ, JB without JC, is condemnation. I'm trying to change my mind, but I still can't seem to stop. But JC without JB is cheap grace. Says so Jesus is just going to forgive me anyways. What difference does it make? I don't need to change. But every time Jesus seems to be healing someone and changing someone and dealing with their sin, his response afterwards is, go and sin no more. You know what that is, right? That's repent. Change. Please hear me in this. Because what the Lord wants for each of us today as we hear this is to speak to our own hearts and ask, do we give Christ the authority in our changing of our mind? In our changing of our mind, what we say is, you know what, I'm not going to be the boss of my life. You need to be the boss of my life. And I have to give you permission to do that. And all of my hopes and my dreams and my priorities and the way I identify myself, all of those things need to be handed to you for you to reinvent. Because if you don't do those things, then I'm not repenting of anything. I'm just trying to add you because my whole life's about serving me and making my life better. And if you, you know, want to offer to make my life a little bit better, well, then why would I just recruit that into what I'm already thinking? There's no repentance in that. There's no dealing with sin in that. There's no handing over our lives in that. When the Lord says, this is what I have for your life, and then you say, yeah, 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 well, but this is what I have for my life. Why don't you get behind what I'm doing? We're really not declaring Jesus to be the Lord at all. That's like we went straight to JC without JB in the route. But truth be told, there needs to be both. And this, these individuals here, they actually didn't mind John the Baptist. And the reason they didn't mind John the Baptist, to be honest, is because he brought people to church. Because he got people thinking seriously about God, and so they knew that they had to deal with that. So they kind of went and said, well, let's do something about that. We, I guess we should really get a little bit more involved. John 5.35, Jesus speaks about him, and he says, by the way, he was a burning and shining lamp, by which, by the way, you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. And don't miss this. People don't mind somebody actually making you think about Jesus, make you think about getting right with God. When you realize how rotten the world is and you want everyone else to change but you. The problem is when you have to deal with you. How you liked his you liked his heat. You liked John's passion. You liked his fire because you know what it was doing? It was burning the people around you you already had a problem with. And it was convicting people. And you were watching this. You were watching people go, oh, man, I am not right. I need to deal with this. I need to get right. And because of that, you really liked that. You loved the fact he was dealing with that. But you were always, every time you heard these things, you kept thinking, ooh, if only this person could hear it. Or, oh, it's a shame this person isn't hearing this right now. Instead of going, God, what part of this do I need to grab hold of? Because you didn't mind enjoying his heat until you realized it was supposed to be for you, too. And these chief priests and leaders, they were approaching Jesus, the very one which John told us, of course, was coming. And they're like, who do you think you are? Which tells us that they never for a moment ever really were willing to hand themselves over to God's will through John the Baptist. 
Matter of fact, Luke tells us about the Pharisees and the scribes that they actually denied, defied, or rejected the will of God for themselves, refusing to be baptized by John. Like God had a will, and his will for those people was for them to repent. You know, it, we read it is not God's desire that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's where it goes. Look, at we are about to pray here. But let me ask you, is there any area you're still fighting God and God says, I want this done. I want you to do this. This is my call for you. And you're like, hmm. And you feel like your excuse is a good enough one. But if the Lord's the one speaking to you, do you really want to fight God over it? Because somehow you think you have more inside information than he does? Because somehow maybe the choice is a harder one or a scarier one or it takes you out of your comfort zone. And I'm, hey, I'm talking to myself with this too. My challenge today is that you would change your mind. That you would go for what God tells you to go for. Or you'd stop doing what God told you not to. If you change your mind, He will change your heart in that matter. And I've learned this. And so He says, well, here's my question to you, John the Baptist. Where did it come from? Who gave Him that authority? And so they huddle up, which has to look really interesting, right? Because Jesus is, they've asked, they came straight at Jesus with all of his, you know, with all of his students around him, his disciples, and they're going to slam him. And instead, now Jesus asks them a question, and they have to recoil, and they have to have a little huddle over here. And as they do, they're like, hmm, well, here are our options. So like Kowalski, what are our options? And they say, well, here's our first. The first is this. We could say, from God... But then we know what he's going to say. He's going to say, well, if you believe that John was called from God, then why don't you listen to him? He was the one who said I'm okay. But if we say for men, we're going to get beat to death by this crowd. Because, and it, notice it says, we fear them. Did you notice that? Because I'll call him a prophet. So they have to come back. Now, which one of you wants to be the chief priest that has to say this answer to Jesus? And so they say, we don't know. And I wonder if this was the first time they ever heard this in their life from those leaders. I wonder if for the first time in their life they actually heard a person that thought that they were in control of everything finally say they don't know something. But isn't it refreshing? Now, obviously, in this case, they're saying that because they really know that Jesus has them at checkmate. But if you think you're going to share Jesus with someone and you're afraid... That someone's going to ask you a question you don't answer? Is if somehow you really think they're going to defeat you if you simply say, I don't know? Don't you think it would be refreshing for them to hear you actually be honest? Because they've sat with university professors and other people who've called themselves experts like the media in any area they speak of when they most of the time have no clue what they're speaking of. But so you're not running the universe, so you don't have to know everything. But you know who is running the universe and you can introduce them to that person, to God. And so they ask, well, what about the Pope? How in the world are you supposed to answer that? I like to say, I don't know. He's never invited me to dinner. I've never met the guy. What about the Inquisitions? What, in Spain? Well, how old do you think I am? What about, that, what about those crazy priests that are doing sick things to people? 
How do you ask me about those questions? So you're like, what do you do? You're a pharmacist. What about those drug dealers down the way? What about that guy that, you know, what about, what about Amy Winehouse? We're in Camden. What do you have to say about that, huh? They're like, you're a lunatic. I'm just a pharmacist. You're like, yeah, I'm just a Christian. Bought by the blood of Christ. Redeemed by the gift of Jesus. Made new at his resurrection. And you can be too. You can throw all your arguments you want. You know, people still want to go and be in love. Even though most people have really had bad experiences in that direction. And they've certainly know stories of someone who's really been hurt in the name of love. But it didn't stop them because there's an appetite inside them that drives them to it. Let me ask you a question. How many of you here have ever had food poisoning? Yeah. Matter of fact, that wasn't that long ago, was it? You know. I know there wasn't. I remember thinking my wife was going to lose her kidneys. I almost lost my wife to food poisoning. Fast food, Chinese food, drive through Dangerous idea. But you still eat after that. Because there's an appetite inside you that makes you want to eat. Have you ever had food that you've gone, this is really, really, really awful? And I'm assuming none of you are thinking about coming over to our house and experiences you've had there. Uh, that doesn't keep you from eating because there's a hunger inside you. You may have had a bad relationship or several that brings up really painful thoughts as you hear certain songs or even the concept, but it, there's still an appetite inside of you to be with someone. And God placed an appetite inside of you for him. And even with all the counterfeits and all of the abuses and so forth that have been done, quote unquote, in God's name, there's still an appetite that God wants to meet. And you recognize all you're doing is you're being the waiter. You're saying, here's God's menu, and he'd really like to meet that hunger inside of you. And here's the price. Change your mind. Accept the gift of Jesus Christ on your stead. And then let him, then follow him and let him fill you. Interesting, by the way, because if you were going to actually take up a disciple in these days, you started... With this, you stood before your teacher to be like, for instance, what Saul would have had to do to Gamaliel. And he would have had to openly declare he knows nothing. That's what you start with. You start with this simple statement. I know nothing. And the reason you say that is I'm not going to fight you over what you're going to teach me. Pretending like I know. And in that same way, might I say. <laughs> we can do the same thing. I remember teaching at a dojo where you would be teaching martial arts and we talk about people coming in and they're like, well, I already have this experience and this experience and so you're just going to have to just give me a little extra oomph in this direction or something. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is, we're not catering and bespoking this. You have to start by knowing nothing and working from the discipline up. And we go to God and we're like, God, I really know most of this stuff already. I'm already really smart. You don't get it. I get all of this. And then God's like, no, no, no. You want to start by saying, look, it's start from the ground up on this thing. But for these people, they were that close. We don't know was the beginning of, how, well, how little do you know? They thought they knew everything, but they're standing before God condemning him, thinking that they're representing him. Does that make any sense to you? Because it doesn't to me. Now look at this. We go to prayer now. Here we are. 
2016. And we are here in autumn. And there are areas that God wants to change in all of our lives, but understand as He wants to change them, He wants to pour forth such beauty and such beautiful and divine things into you. And He's looking for permission. And that's part of what it means to change your mind, to repent. You are turning around and saying, God, I'm not going to rely on me. I'm going to rely on you. God, I don't get this. I don't understand this, but I don't have to. I just want us to take a moment and get quiet before the Lord before we even pray. And then ask the Lord, is there any area that you've been trying to speak to me that I've been acting like I'm all in, but I'm kind of, la 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 la, really, if I'm in all practice. And I want to do the same. And then I remind you, Jesus died on a cross to pay for it already. But he rose again to give us a new life. That's why the baptism of Jesus makes so much sense. Because it isn't just holding you down to the bubble stop. Good news. He didn't just bury who we were. The testimony is who we are now in him. The part the world doesn't see or know. Because all they see is the sacrifice, but they don't see the new life. And we're supposed to be evidence of that. And of course, that comes with that choice. We repent of the life we've lived, trusting in our own ways to make ourselves right with God and accept the gift of Jesus Christ. We know that. But repenting is not just, all right, Jesus, I'm the center of my universe and you're welcome to orbit me like a moon. But rather, I make you the center of my life. That's where real repentance begins. So let's get quiet before the Lord and then we'll pray. Let's do that now. want to pretend like you have all of me but you don't I don't want to fight you over anything and no matter what but I want to throw into it but God this is uncomfortable or it's frightening or it's I just don't know it's, it's unfamiliar or whatever it is God I want you to be the Lord of all. And as you are the Lord of all, oh God, please, that we would have the hope and the joy of knowing how beautiful it is to be completely yours. We do confess, Lord, that this all started because you gave us your all. Sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for us. That all of who we are could be executed and buried. All of the guilt paid. And then to raise again to give us new life. And so Lord, I just pray right now for each of us. Please, Lord. Please today let us not hold back. 
Let us willingly repent and let you be the center where you belong. And we, your servants. We don't want to be someone so busy trying to keep order, Lord, in our lives, trying to control everything where we don't, where we feel like you have to fit into certain slots. Because truth be told, anything else would be a little dangerous. But today, Lord, I pray that would change. Convict our hearts. But then, Lord, flood them with the joy of saying yes to you. We say yes to you all over again. And say thank you. Thank you so much for making us yours. And therefore we say, have all of us. Have all of us, God. Because you're really the only thing we need. So here we are, we're yours. In Jesus' name. Amen.